You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com gps. That's netsuite.com gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the program, Ukraine's counteroffensive. It is being hard fought on the ground, but also from the air with thousands upon thousands of drones. I'll talk to Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, about the technologies Ukraine will need to win this war. Then, what is happening in China where there are new signs the economy is stumbling? How will that impact the rest of the world? I'll ask the Wall Street Journal's Ling Ling Wei. Plus, a European government collapses over immigration. The continent's second longest serving leader steps down after taking a hardline stance on refugees. Why does this issue continue to disrupt politics across the globe? I'll ask an expert. Finally, I'll bring you a special preview of my newest documentary on immigration. We have a planet of people on the move. It is called Immigration Breakdown and will air tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific here on CNN. But first, here's my take. Last week, President Biden revealed something striking about his reason for wanting to run again in 2024. During his interview for this show, I put it to him that even some of his most ardent supporters, those who think that he's turned the economy around and restored relations with the rest of the world, believe that he should step aside and let another generation of Democrats take the baton. Why are they wrong, I asked. Biden responded by speaking solely about foreign policy. He argued that the world is facing dramatic change and that the U.S. has a unique opportunity to bring together the world's democracies. He insisted that he is succeeding at doing that and that he wants to finish the job. Having spoken to Biden before, I would say that central to his worldview is the belief that the world today is being shaped by a series of challenges from autocratic states, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and that the future will hinge on how the democracies respond to these challenges. Now, like anyone who wants to be president, Biden has a healthy ego and he's wanted the job since he was a young man. But I think it's fair to say that he is also driven by a sense that the future of the international order is on the line. The stakes are in fact high and they are made much higher by the fact that for the first time since the World War II era, the basic issue of America's engagement with the world is becoming a partisan issue. The U.S. stepped onto the world stage in 1917 to prevent a great power from dominating Europe. In 1945, after World War II, it stayed engaged to ensure peace and stability in Eurasia. But today, as Russia wages a brutal war in Europe that seems a throwback to World War II, 
There is deep division in America about staunchly opposing that aggression. Consider the numbers. According to a recent Gallup poll, 79% of Democrats want to help Ukraine regain lost territory, even if that means prolonging the conflict. By contrast, 49% of Republicans would like to end the conflict quickly, even if that means letting the Russians hold onto the territories that they have acquired by force. On NATO, Democrats approve of it by a wide margin, 76% to 22%, while Republicans are split, with 49% approving and the same number disapproving, according to a Pew survey conducted in March. On the broader issue of engagement with the world, 60% of Democrats in the same poll believe it's best for the future of our country to be active in world affairs, while only 39% felt we should pay less attention to problems overseas and concentrate on problems here at home. For Republicans, those numbers are essentially reversed, with 71% wanting to focus at home and just 29% believing in an active world role for America. This is not a settled issue. There is a debate within the Republican Party. Some senior figures like Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence are vigorously making the case for an active and engaged America. But the party's base seems to be with the isolationists, as can be seen by the tilting stances of the weather-vane Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. From Donald Trump to his copycat, Ron DeSantis, and the party's most powerful media ideologist, Tucker Carlson, conservatives are increasingly contemptuous of America's support for Ukraine and its strong alliance with Europe. Senator Josh Hawley said to the New York Times that while some Republicans remain staunchly interventionist, that's not where the voters are. As Max Boot has pointed out, some conservatives claim to be against supporting Ukraine, but in favor of confronting China. That, as he notes, is because China is an economic foe run by the Communist Party. But this also has to do with the fact that many conservatives are not interested in an engaged foreign policy. They're focused on building tariffs and walls, subsidizing domestic industry, raising xenophobic suspicions about Chinese students and Chinese Americans, and giving the Pentagon even bigger budgets. This is a reprise of the old Jacksonian foreign policy of a fortress America. The Republican Party might be returning to its roots. After all, it bitterly opposed America's entry into World War II until Pearl Harbor. Even after the war, many Republicans opposed NATO and American engagement with the world, even though they were strong anti-communists and then, as now, claimed to want to focus on China. Dwight Eisenhower offered not to run against Robert Taft, the leading Republican of his day, if Taft would just endorse NATO. Taft refused. So Eisenhower ran to preserve America's engagement with the world and the international peace and stability that it brought. Alas, there is no Eisenhower to redirect the Republican Party today. And the stakes are as high as they were in 1952, if not higher. As we look around the world and at dangers to the international order, the single biggest risk may lie not in the killing fields of Ukraine or across the Taiwan Straits, but rather on the campaign trail here in the United States. Go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started.
Ukraine's counteroffensive is into its second month, and progress has been slow. The challenges are vast. Russia's war in Ukraine is the world's largest armed conflict since World War II. This war is being fought on the ground with traditional weaponry like tanks and bullets, but also in the skies with newer technologies like drones. A report in May found Ukraine was losing more than 10,000 drones per month. Well, my next guest says swarms of drones are the future of war. Eric Schmidt ran Google for many years, but more recently advised the Pentagon as the chair of the Defense Innovation Board. He now chairs the Special Competitive Studies Project, a think tank focused on technology and national security. I should note I am a senior advisor at Schmidt Futures, his philanthropic initiative. Eric Schmidt, pleasure to have you. Good to be back. So um, you were recently in Ukraine, and a lot of the, your concerns stem from that. Uh, let, let's first just get a sense of the lay of the land. Um, what, do, to you, what does the battlefield look like? Who has the advantage? The thing that's shocking is how big this war is. It's a thousand kilometers long. And since 2014, the Russian side has dug themselves in in this horrific way. So if you were a Ukrainian soldier with your commander saying go across this five kilometer disputed area, you'd have to get through the tanks, the mines, the machine guns, their drones. You get to the other side, you do your killing, and then the back part of Russia kills you. It's an insurmountable task. I was stunned to read how many shells the Russians are using. 60,000 a day. The world production in the West can accommodate about 5,000 a day. I guess the Russians have been building artillery for about 50 years, and they have an infinite supply. 60,000 a day. Now, I mean, my math, you're talking about something like 20 million a year. I mean, so it's crazy. Today, this is a World War I artillery war with people dug in. How incredible, a hundred years later, we haven't come up with another way. If you're the Ukrainians trying to break through, you want to get to the Sea of Azov, you have to break through this initial line below Zaporizhia, for example, and then you have to make a corridor. Well, as you go through your corridor, they're bombing you as well. And now the bombing is precision bombing, exactly. right? Because you can target more accurately. And the American doctrine, is that you would always do such infantry moves with air power, which the Ukrainians don't have. And the air power comes in, cleans the path, and then the American gets, gets the other side running back, and then they start to win. We, meaning the Ukrainians, the US, the West, need a solution to get them moving. So that gets us to drones. They are already using an, an extraordinary number of drones, the Ukrainians. How many drones are they, are they using a week or a month? They're on track to using a couple hundred thousand drones in a year. Most drones only survive one or two flights before they fail or they're blocked. I was shocked at how good the Russians were at electronic warfare and jamming. Basically, everything you send into this battlefield, which is quite narrow, by the way, uh, the rest of the country is fine, I suspect, on both sides. They, they jam everything. GPS is jammed, but also communications is jammed. So normal drones don't work. So the Ukrainians have taken cheap drones and added additional antenna, antennas. One of the things that I learned was something called a kamikaze drone, which is a $400 Chinese drone that carries a small payload that moves so fast you can't shoot it down. I had thought that that was the innovation of the war, 
two generals yesterday told me that I'm wrong and that what they really need are cruise missile drones, which can go really far and carry with wings and can carry more payloads. I don't think the Ukrainian drone strategy is completely formed, but they're building a completely new theory of war. And this is where we get to the solution. For you, the only way the Ukrainians can break through these lines is with massive numbers of drones. Massive number of drones or massive number of human casualties on both sides. The beauty of the drone is it can take out the other side's military target without collateral damage, right? We are very concerned about the, the propagation of this war against other countries, but I'm very concerned about its effect on civilians, both the Russians and the Ukrainians. The important thing about a drone is it's a very, very targeted solution. It's very inexpensive. I think the goal that we should have for Ukraine is to establish the principle that there will never be another land war where you can invade successfully, that, that respecting the, land, the sovereignty of the land is important. If you're mad at them, that's fine. You can negotiate, you can put pressure, but you can't send artillery and flatten cities, which is what the Russians have been doing. How do you get uh, how, do you, how do you get to the solution of, I mean, is there, can the Ukrainians produce hundreds of thousands of drones? They have the money and they have the talent. They haven't figured out how to build all the factories yet. And they have to be built in Ukraine for many, many reasons. So what I know is there are about 60 companies that are building these types of drones. What's interesting is it's just like startups in the sense that they're not particularly well coordinated. They're moving so quickly. Remember, this is all a year old. Their operating systems and software aren't very integrated. They can't speak to each other. All the problems that you would imagine. Now, if it were peacetime, you'd have an overall strategy, you'd get them organized and so forth. What's interesting to me is that this is both a broadband war, but it's also a technology war in the sense that it's innovative. And innovation occurs in small companies, not in the MOD. The Ukrainians were interesting. I think you know as well that the um, Ukrainians set up their drone operation outside the military. And the drone guy, his name is Fedorov, is busy supplying them to the military. But he controls the money, he controls the strategy. They told us that the biggest problem they currently have is that at the moment they're taking these tiny little, essentially, pipe bombs and dropping them onto tanks. And what they want is laser-guided ones, or guided ones, which is America's had for a long time, that can follow the target. Um, again, this is stuff that America did 20 years ago that they're just catching up on. Did it, does, does all this leave you net-net positive, optimistic? I hate to say it, but I think this is going to go on for a long time. There's not enough advantage on either side. I don't think uh, Russia will gain much land, if any. And I think the going is so slow to get across this danger zone, this killing field, that it will take a year or two. Now, of course, there could be breakthroughs, there could be um, Wagner could start running and things like that that we don't, we don't understand. But at the moment, it's much more balanced than the marketing says. They talk about this counteroffensive, which is a, certainly a great idea. They're not ready to do an American-style, 100 million people, you know, stay, you know, full power. They don't have the assets. Furthermore, if you put uh, airplanes in the air, they get shot down by Russian surface-to-air missiles. So it's a really hard problem. One of my friends who was looking at this strategically said, you realize that the Russians have been fighting this way for 100 years. I said, okay. And he said, that means that you have to give them a hard problem to solve. The simple problems, like do this and do that, they're, they're, the other side is too sophisticated. And the Russians are clearly in this to win. Sobering, but, but very smart. Thank you, Eric Schmidt. Thank you. Next on GPS, 
warning signs are flashing for the Chinese economy. What does it mean for the rest of the world when we come back? China released figures this week showing inflation in June was at 0%. Now, that may sound enviable to countries struggling with high inflation as their economies run too hot. But a little bit of inflation is a sign of a healthy, growing economy. China's lack of any inflation and the risk of tipping into deflation indicates a very sluggish economy. This comes as U.S.-China tensions remain high, though Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's recent trip to Beijing seems to have had a positive effect. To talk about it all, I am joined by Ling Ling Wei, chief China correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and the co-author of Superpower Showdown. Ling Ling, give us a sense of what you are learning about the Chinese economy over the last few weeks, because it all seems to be on the downside. That's a great question, Farid. Uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, yes, China's economy really is struggling big time. Uh, the kind of a weakness is um, really across the board. You just mentioned about uh, the kind of deflationary pressure in China. Um, it really is a result of very weak domestic demand, uh, very weak private investment, and also exports are struggling as well. Um, you know, uh, another uh, issue that, that is bothering, you know, China uh, policymakers and a lot of investors in China is the fact that, you know, China's relationship with the United States and uh, with the West overall has also worsened uh, a lot. That also has dealt a big big blow to, you know, the kind of confidence, public confidence in China's economy. You wrote about how... Uh Private companies are now leaving China. Um, you, you, you've talked about private consumers not spending as much. That piece of it particularly, the, 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 you know, every other country had a post-COVID bounce of what people call revenge spending. China did not. Why do you think that is? Uh, sure. Uh, when the Chinese government uh, very suddenly and abruptly lifted COVID restrictions late last year, that indeed was the hope uh, among a lot of investors and businesses that, you know, China's economy would bounce back very strongly, very quickly. But the fact of the matter was uh, a lot of uh, Chinese families and Chinese consumers, they have become very much financially uh, strained because over the past three years, under very stringent COVID restrictions, a lot of them have lost jobs and some of them have suffered pay cuts. You know, private companies are not doing well. They're not hiring as much. Uh, foreign businesses have also, you know, uh, some of them have also reduced investment in China. So there are uh, a lot of people in China have seen their income levels, um, you know, decline. But at the same time, uh, they have taken the, the kind of debt to buy houses, buy cars. So their balance sheet, you know, it's just not that great. So they have, um, you know, uh, really refrained from spending on a lot of stuff they used to, you know, enjoy, like travel, uh, like luxury, uh, buying luxury brands, especially for the middle class. When, when you look at this one piece of data that is not completely about economics, but I wonder if it has a kind of economic, there's a backdrop to it, which is 
the, the, the recent numbers show that people are getting married much less in China. Young people are getting, there's the much lower rates of, of uh, you know, of, of partnerships and marriages. What do you think that's about? You know, in China, there's a term for that. It's called lying flat. You know, people are not dating. Dating, they're not getting married, uh, they're not having kids because that shows a sense of uh, you know really frustration with the direction the country is going. Uh, there's this sense of uh, hopelessness, you know, really palpable sense of hopelessness, hopelessness among a lot of uh, young people. Uh, latest data show that. Uh, the unemployment rate uh, among the younger generation uh, has reached a record of more than 20%. So, you know, when you are really struggling uh, finding jobs and, um, you know, making ends meet, I think, you know, a lot of people might really uh, hit the pause button in terms of uh, planning for their future. For so many years, China was seen as one of the single, if not the largest contributor to global growth. With a China that's, you know, I mean, seems to be growing uh, almost not at all. Uh, Does this mean we're in, you know, this is going to have an effect on global growth? We're already seeing commodity prices are weaker, oil prices are weaker. Uh, we, we, We should expect this for a while if this continues, right? Oh, sure. That's a great point. Um, you know, for years, China has been this engine of growth. Just think back to the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, right? China really helped rescue the global economy uh, with very robust growth uh, with this demand, insatiable demand for commodities and other kind of products from all over the world. Fast forward to today, uh, China's uh, growth is really sputtering. And, um, you know, uh, there is a, a fear among a lot of uh, economists and analysts we talk to. You know, China might under pressure to further uh, drive down its currency, right, to help domestic economy. And, you know, a you know, not as stable uh, Chinese currency would, uh, be, uh, you know, spell like be a really big risk for uh, global financial markets. And, you know, China slows the rest of the world, you know, it's, it's not really um, having a good time either. So the impact is, is going to be very palpable and it's going to be here to stay for, for probably the foreseeable future. Ling Lingwei, always insightful to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Last week, Europe's second longest serving prime minister announced that his government would resign. The surprising end of Mark Rutte's leadership of the Netherlands came after his conservative government's strict new immigration proposals were rejected by coalition partners. The thorny issue of immigration is hardly unique to the Netherlands. In May, the UN Refugee Agency announced that the number of refugees worldwide increased from 27.1 million in 2021 to 35.3 million at the end of 2022. That was the biggest yearly increase ever recorded, in large part due to the war in Ukraine. In response, many countries have vowed to create tougher environments for asylum seekers. To help us better understand how the politics of immigration is playing out around the world, we're joined by the journalist Christopher Caldwell, who's long written on these issues. Welcome. 
So when you look around Europe, and this is separate from the Ukraine issue, what you have is this very large influx of migrants who are coming in. And as in America, they claim to be asylum seekers. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is, to my mind, at the heart of the controversy, is it not that there is this feeling that these are not real asylum seekers? Uh, Well, yes. Uh, And and that that has... uh... That feeling has kind of increased since the <clears throat> migration from the Syrian war in, in 2015. Uh, you know, up until then, I think that most immigration, you could say, was, was labor-related. It was not asylum-related. But you got people coming from the Syrian war. But then in their train came a whole bunch of people from all sorts of different countries from, you know, from Afghanistan, from as far away as, uh, as Pakistan. And um, they were coming into this asylum-seeking group. So, yes, there is um, impatience and skepticism uh, about that. But there's, there's also a, a kind of a backdrop of a there's, a... there's a demographic sort of like weather system kind of on the horizon, which is sort of you have a... You have a lot of demographic pressure building up in Africa, which is destined to gain uh, about a billion people in the next generation. And you have a shrinking population in Europe. And that means that whatever we're seeing in the Mediterranean now uh, is going to increase, you know. And on top of that, you have this, one hopes, temporary um, dislocation of a lot of Ukrainians, which is creating certain acute problems too. And would it be fair to say, I mean, there is a kind of uh, conventional wisdom, I'd say, that the Europeans are not as good at assimilating immigrants uh, as Americans. And the most recent eruption in France certainly does seem to bear that narrative out. Mm -hmm. Is that problem of assimilation as acute as ever? Has it increased? Give us a window into that. I think it varies from country to country. And I think that there are some countries that really do have um, sort of like promising similarities with the United States. France has a kind of a sort of a, a, a sort of like a creed of, you know, universalism kind of like the United States does. Britain has a very representative geographical system so that whenever you get an you get a, a, a concentration of immigrants in any one place. They're going to elect people, put people in the parliament, you know, very, very quickly. So there are good things in all of these countries, but none of them quite have the whole American package. It would be fair to say that the immigration issue, uh, migration, asylum, assimilation, uh, is at this point the hardest issue in Europe. Uh, when you think about these trends of populism, this is what is fueling them. Yeah, I think, I think in, you know, when you don't have a, a major economic crisis or a, or, or a pandemic, I think that, that, that migration tends to be the, 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 the biggest issue in these, in these countries. And does it, does it all leave you optimistic or pessimistic? I, you know, I've been writing about this for, for you know, I don't know, a couple of decades now. About 20 years ago, there were, there were a number of different paths open to Europe. I mean, uh, uh, Europe could sort of like open up and, 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 and change um, 
its societies, or it could could close up the borders and and sort of retain the societies that had existed historically. I think that moment has passed, and so now we're in a kind of we're in a kind of inevitable transformation of these societies, and 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 people are just going to ad- adjust as they can. Um, so I mean, there. Good things can happen and bad things can happen, but it's going to be within the context of a change. And the change is going to make Europe um, a little less traditional, a little more American, a little more um, market-oriented, a little more money-oriented, a little less diverse culturally. I mean, the the, the countries of the continent will resemble each other more. that will have its good and bad things about it. Christopher Colwell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Next on GPS, when he is not hosting the lead on this network, he's writing novels. I'll talk to Jake Tapper about his new book and much more when we come back. My next guest is Jake Tapper, whom you obviously know as host of The Lead and The State of the Union on CNN, but he is also an accomplished novelist and has just published his third novel, All the Demons Are Here. It takes place amidst the roiling tensions of the late 1970s in America. Among the book's central characters are the daredevil stuntman Evil Knievel and a Rupert Murdoch-inspired conservative tabloid publisher. Welcome, Jake Tapper. Thank you so much. It's, that is definitely the first time you have ever said Evil Knievel on air. I, I'm guessing. <laughs> we, we will get to him. But first, I want to ask you, as a journalist, when you went back to the 1970s, because um, this is a period you kind of, you know, you grew up in. You're younger than me, so you're, you, were young, you were very young. But what struck you about the 70s as different uh, from, you know, from your uh, kind of prejudgments about it? So I was eight in 1977 when the book takes place, and I don't remember the 70s all that fondly. Uh, I mean, I I remember my childhood fondly, but the era itself I remember for, um, you know, uh, gas lines and disco uh, and the death of Elvis. That that was pretty much it. Everything else was just my little world of, of childhood. Going back and realizing what an insane and wild era it was was actually... Uh, really interesting, uh, fascinating, even because I'd lived through it, but didn't realize all the things were that were going on. The the all the the rash of UFO sightings, including by Jimmy Carter, uh, the rise of cults, the uh, New York City blackout, the Son of Sam murders, an entire city gripped by the serial killer, the rise of tabloid journalism, evil Knievel, the death of Elvis. It, it really was this. Uh, insane time in this nation's history. And, and uh, it was fun to write about, fun to dive back into. And in a way, 1977 almost becomes like a character in the book. You know, uh, David Frum, the journalist, wrote a book called The 70s, in which he pointed out that what we think of as the 60s really mostly happened in the 70s, the kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the incredible efflorescence of culture, the new movies. That's all really the 70s. So it was a, it was a rich period for you to, to set it in. Did you feel like you were... Um, were, you able, were you trying to capture the essence of the 70s or just yeah. use it as a backdrop? 
No, I tried to capture the essence. I mean, one of the main characters, there are two main characters, Ike, who is an AWOL Marine working for Evil Knievel in Butte, Montana, and his sister Lucy, who is an aspiring journalist who, who hooks up with this Murdoch-esque family starting a tabloid uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, but no, I, I thrust them into it. I, I have Ike traveling with Evil Knievel to Graceland after Elvis dies. I have Lucy going to Studio 54, uh, which opened in 1977, the celebrity discotheque, and, and experiencing uh, that and looking at all the odd characters that are there, including Roy Cohn, uh, who really was, you know, the McCarthy uh, protege, Joe McCarthy protege, who, who was at Studio 54 quite often. I, I, I embraced it. I, I loved it. I mean, I didn't get to experience any of it. Um, uh, I was too young. And uh, I was in Philly, so I wasn't in Butte or, uh, or New York City. Um, and it was, it was actually a real joy. And you're exactly right. It was, this was the era of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in a way that the 60s we think of as, but not really. And the 70s was really when people were getting uh, very fast and loose uh, with their social lives. And Evil Knievel. Now, you know, I grew up in India in the 70s, and even I heard of Evil Knievel. Because, and, and you get at exactly this phenomenon, which is he's one of these celebrities who became a celebrity for a bizarre concatenation of circumstances, but really became huge. But in the novel, he then uses that celebrity, a la Donald Trump, to run for president. Yeah. Did, you, did, did you see that as a kind of foreshadowing of Trump? I, I mean, I do think that they are kind of the the same type of quintessentially American character in the in the mode of P.T. Barnum, just individuals who are able to grab the public's attention, grab the media's attention, get supporters, uh, shoot from the hip and say things that no one else could get away with, but he gets away with it for whatever reason. Uh, and he really was a precursor to Donald Trump in many ways. Well, the whole thing reads superbly. Jake Tapper, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fareed. And now for the last look. Earlier in the show, you heard about the collapse of the Dutch government over immigration. Here in the United States, of course, immigration is a political hot button as well. Our country is full. We don't want people coming up here. Our country is full. We want Mexico to stop. We want all of them to stop. Our country is packed to the gills. A record 2.4 million migrants were apprehended at the border last fiscal year. That shattered the record set the previous year and nearly equaled the total population of the city of Chicago. America's immigration system is broken. But the problem isn't what Mr. Trump and his allies might have you believe. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Here's a clip from my newest documentary, Immigration Breakdown. It will premiere tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on CNN. The real disaster isn't that too many immigrants have made it to the U.S. So how many got? You are now a U.S. citizen. Congratulations. It's that we aren't letting in nearly enough. Fertility rate in the United States fell to yet an all-time low. More and more American women are deciding not to have kids at all. America is in the middle of a baby bust. 
The birth rate has fallen dramatically. It's below uh, replacement level. Not enough Americans are being born to replace those who have died. Historically, the safety valve for the U.S. has been immigrants. But starting under President Trump, immigration to the U.S. plummeted, cutting us off from the workers we desperately need. Growing fears of a recession. And fanning the flames of economic decline. A massive labor shortage. The highest inflation in 40 years. The clock is ticking on Social Security. America has three options. You can either have more babies. Which many experts say just won't happen. Or you can welcome more immigrants. I hereby declare on oath. Or you can dwindle and, and fade into stagnation and irrelevance. I would favor the, the second option, welcoming more immigrants. Instead, we've chosen the third, stagnation. Refusing to let in more foreign workers, according to one estimate, could cost the U.S. economy $9 trillion by 2030. On the other hand, if everybody in the world who wanted to move could move, by one estimate, the total income of humanity would double. You heard that right. Global wealth would roughly double as workers from less affluent countries move to join bustling economies. Tune in tonight to understand the problem and explore solutions. Immigration Breakdown premieres tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on CNN. And thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you tonight and then again next week.